Today I'll be chatting with Dr. Nicola Guess about how to prevent type 2 diabetes. This episode is the second part of a two-part conversation. We discuss diabetes management in part one. Dr. Nicola Guess has been studying diabetes prevention for over a decade and has directly helped many people reduce their risk through her private practice. In this episode, we discuss why type 2 diabetes has become so common and what you can do to reduce your risk. Dr. Guess also sheds light on some of the biology that underlies the leading risk factors for type 2 diabetes. Dr. Guest runs a private clinical practice as a registered dietitian focused on diabetes prevention and management. She is also an associate professor at the University of Westminster, a research fellow at King's College London, and head of nutrition research at the Dasman Diabetes Institute in Kuwait. Dr. Guest holds a PhD in diabetes prevention and a master's of public health. She's also trained as a registered dietitian. Please note that this conversation should not be seen as personal medical advice and that any major dietary changes should be undertaken in consultation with your healthcare team. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome to the show, Dr. Nicola Guest. Thank you so much for being here. Okay, so today we're gonna to be talking about how to prevent type two diabetes. This is a second conversation following on our chat just a few moments ago about type two diabetes management. So I wanna get started by maybe setting the global stage because I think it um, can be really informative to look at what's been happening to type two diabetes rates around the world. Where is this a biggest problem and where is, are there places that are still not experiencing a lot of type two diabetes and what can we learn from that? I mean, globally it's going up. I mean, it, it varies immensely between regions. Uh, some of the worst regions are in the Middle East. Um, we're seeing uh, super high prevalence of type 2 diabetes and pre-diabetes in adolescents. Um, in South Asia, so in India, um, in China, we're also seeing it. That's pretty scary. One of the, one of the think, most alarming statistics I've read is that in 1981, less than 1% of the population of China had type 2 diabetes. Now, about two-thirds of the country has pre-diabetes. So you, th this is, see how the environment has changed, the food environment has changed, how humans respond to that environment and the cardiometabolic consequences of that. Wow. Yeah. So what, what do we, what do people think has changed about the food environment and the food itself? I mean, so, so it's important to note two things are leading to the substantial increase in type two diabetes prevalence. Now, one of those things is good is age. So we mm. think about a third of the, the extra cases that we have are simply because we're living longer and that's a really yeah. good thing. Mm -hmm. But undoubtedly two thirds is because we're all gaining weight, we're not doing enough activity. Um, and I think anyone can look around and you can see why this is. Supersizing, drive-throughs, mail order. Um, human beings really like food and we live in an environment where we can get it whenever we want it. Mm -hmm. Very different than the foraging days. <laughs> Where it's yeah, almost definitely. impossible to overeat, right? Right, exactly. That brings me into, I guess, what I wanted to to sort of set the stage for for diabetes um, prevention by understanding what are the key risk factors and how do you how do you know what your risk level is? Um, is it is it possible? Are there simple calculators? What are the sort of variables that go into those? 
Sure. So there are lots of risk calculators now. Um, one that I recommend, I mean, I'm in the UK, is a Diabetes UK risk calculator. and But most of them have the same uh, variables that they put into those calculators. They are age, ethnicity, because both of those two things can influence type 2 diabetes risk, weight, of course, uh, often waist, weight, waist circumference. So even if people are slim, if they have a large waist circumference, that increases their risk of type 2 diabetes as well. Uh, some of them might ask about physical activity, um, and many of them will ask about family history of type 2. Mm -hmm. So if you have a first degree relative, so that's a parent or sibling, that also increases your risk. Mm -hmm. What are What is the heritability of type 2 diabetes? I mean, what I guess what proportion of cases are happening in people that have a family history. I guess I'm actually a geneticist by background, so I know that these the nature and nurture are so convoluted it can be hard, but I don't know actually what the heritability number is for type 2 diabetes, how it compares um, to others. I didn't know that from the top of my head, so I'm going to avoid <laughs> that question and answer yeah. another question. But okay. I actually think you're absolutely right. This is so hard to figure out what is the true heritability of it. Yeah. Um, because so many in intrauterine um, environment and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but undoubtedly, like I think that the main point has to be that if you go back a hundred years, you just didn't see type two diabetes. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it doesn't mean that it's not genetic because you, it's, it's clearly polygenetic that there are mm -hmm. lots of variants that influence our risk, but our environment never allowed those risk, those variants to express themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happened. It's just that we are now exposed to an environment that puts pressure on us. Uh, makes us gain weight, and then those variants come out. Mm -hmm. What is it about um, about abdominal uh, weight gain that is so, uh, is such a high risk? Um, I mean, part of the reason is it it correlates with visceral fat. So if you if you gather weight around your middle, um, it's more dangerous fat. How all of this works is not entirely clear what we think is that certain types of fat depot have a higher rate of lipolysis and so that basically means the fat within those stores can get broken down more quickly uh, and if your fat is around the middle there's also a hypothesis that that can lead directly into your liver because that of how close all of the i guess pathology is Mm -hmm. um, there are also questions about whether different fat depots um, release more inflammatory factors, those kinds of things. But essentially, the fat that you have in your it, around your middle is more dangerous than subcutaneous fat, say, on your thighs. Mm -hmm. That's good for most women. I guess. Do men have a higher diabetes? I mean, men tend to carry their weight more often in their middle, do they not? And do men have a higher diabetes rate in general? Um, we think that men and women develop type 2 diabetes through different paths. Hmm. So you, your blood glucose is elevated in type 2, as we talked about, that's how you define it. Your blood glucose can be elevated in the fasting state or after you eat. Mm -hmm. And the pathophysiology, so the stuff underneath that's causing elevated fasting versus elevated after meal glucose is different. And it looks like, and again, there are differences between ethnicities that complicate this, but that men develop type 2 diabetes more by elevated fasting and women develop mm -hmm. it more by elevated after meal so mm -hmm. that might be some of the relationships that we're seeing with the with the um uh, kind of apple shaped uh, fat deposition yeah 
So what is the um, trajectory? So I've worked in early cancer detection and I'm kind of trying to superimposing that lens on it and thinking about these risk biomarkers and how they change over time and whether it's a sort of a slow gradual process or is there kind of like this steep curve where um, people's blood glucose change can change really quickly because of some sort of tipping point. How does it, how does it tend to go, your risk profile? Right, that's a great question. And it's actually not as straightforward to answer that as you might think, because to look at the trajectory, you'd need to measure both fasting and after meal glucose, because you mm -hmm. want to pick them both up, and do so regularly mm -hmm. over a long period of time. And yes. actually, there aren't many data in the world that have done that, but a couple mm. have. And what they seem to show is that in most people, it develops fairly slowly over a period of about 10 years, maybe eight to 10. So your blood glucose is going up, but it's going up pretty slowly. Once you get to two to three years before diagnosis, the gradient then shifts and the blood glucose goes up really rapidly. Mm. Um, but with that being said, there clearly are huge intra or inter-individual differences, ethnicity, mm -hmm. family background, so forth. I have seen a study where people go from normal blood glucose through to elevated fasting, through to type two diabetes in less than three years. Mm. So in most people, it takes a long time, but it doesn't mean it can't develop more rapidly. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's shift gears. Let's shift gears to talk about um, dietary strategies, or I guess lifestyle strategies for keeping risk factors low. So what are? Um, I wanted to mostly focus on diet, but I'm curious how diet, um, sort of the power of diet and um, physical activity, are they equally powerful? And you know, I, I suppose most people are recommending both, but if you, if you don't feel you have the resources to focus on one or the other, um, how, do you, how do you sort of navigate that with people? I mean, the, the answer there is we don't know mm -hmm. the, the really accurately and with any precision, the relative contribution of weight loss versus physical activity on preventing type two in a person. Um, undoubtedly weight loss is, is probably the primary driver, but that just might mean because m most people are overweight. So naturally, if 80% of people with type two are overweight, if you can prevent the weight gain, you prevent type two. Um, it does seem to be though, physical activity becomes more important as people are slimmer. So people mm -hmm. can develop type two at a low BMI, say 23, 26. In those people, physical activity is probably more effective Mm -hmm. um, at preventing type two. And that might simply be because there's not much weight to lose. So the one, mm -hmm. uh, I guess, tool in your toolbox is increasing your physical activity. Yeah. So what uh, I, I thought it was interesting when I asked you about sort of the relative contributions of diet and movement, you immediately s substituted weight loss with diet. So what if you change your diet oh, to, yeah. to the same number of calories, but higher quality, is that going, and you didn't lose any weight, is that going to impact your risk or what's going to happen there probably um i mean so let me just say based on the data we have now that's currently available yes that would probably have a small effect at preventing type 2 but the the effect size so the actually actual magnitude of risk reduction is probably not that great and the reason i say that is because the type 2 diabetes prevention studies that have been done so far are terrific studies. So uh, long term, so they, they follow people up over you know, 10, 15 years. Um, they all got some weight loss or they had at least some physical activity. And the diet was focused on weight loss. But they did focus on low fat, low saturated fat, and some on high fiber too. 
So you might think, okay, so maybe it's the increase in fiber that's helping prevent type two people type 2 diabetes as well as the weight loss uh -huh. but when we have and there is one study that looked tried to isolate the effect of fiber there was uh -huh. clearly a direct effect on blood glucose but it wasn't significant uh -huh. so it kind of says I think it's probably protective to some degree but without getting the weight loss it's probably not enough to have um, a significant uh, impact on type 2 diabetes risk uh -huh. so it, it's like sensible to do it to have a healthier diet um, but without the weight loss, I don't think there's much evidence yet that we can prevent type two at the moment. Mm -hmm. So since some of the listeners might not have heard our part one conversation where we discussed diets for diabetes management, I guess I wanted you to, um, to say a few words on you know, the, the question of which diet is best um, and how we measure best. I, I'm also curious uh, to what extent the optimal diet for prevention overlaps with the optimal diet for management. Is, there, is it the same thing? This is a great question. Some of it comes down to semantics and a lot of it comes down to just, we don't know because those studies haven't been done. One of the things that's different about frank type two, so when people have developed type two, is the damage essentially has already been done. So what you're really trying to do, as we currently understand type two, is mitigate that damage. So for example, if your beta cells are not working properly, so they can't control your blood glucose concentration, well, then maybe it's a really great idea to massively lower your carbohydrate and eat a ketogenic diet. So a ketogenic diet might be a great way of managing your type two because the damage has been done. But you go back to preventing and we don't know what a, what a ketogenic diet does to the stuff that goes wrong in developing type two. So if a person has normal beta cell function and they start on a ketogenic diet over 10, 20 years, is there an effect on beta cell function? Could it improve it? Could it worsen it? Um, the fact is we just don't know. Mm -hmm. um, the same is true for lots of these things. And protein, for example, is a really interesting one because this is what I do a lot of my research in. What's really exciting or seems to be in type two is that your beta cells that produce insulin stop recognizing a rise in blood glucose as you develop type 2 diabetes but your beta cells can identify a rise in amino acids so if you have a high protein meal if you have type 2 your body recognizes that your beta cells do oh there's loads of amino acids in the bloodstream let's pump out some insulin and it lowers blood glucose so fabulous that's why it works in type 2 but the effect of amino acids themselves on beta cell function has been woefully studied we have no idea what the effect would be in five, 10 years. Um, it could worsen beta cell function. It could kind of desensitize the membrane and kind of all of this molecular biology stuff. The fact yeah. is we don't know. So uh, the only data sources we have right now to look at this really is epidemiological research and kind of say, okay, if you look at people with a high protein intake versus low, are there differences in their rate of developing type two? And the total amount of protein actually doesn't seem to matter, but the quality of protein does. So plant protein seems to be protective. Animal protein seems to worsen it. I think much of that is confounding that you're looking at two very different sorts of lifestyles there. So, mm -hmm. so all of these questions we, we don't have good data on. So that's my, that's my long-winded way of saying mm -hmm. we have no idea what specific dietary factors do in terms of, particularly with keto and high protein at Preventing type two, they could do, or they could enhance the development of type two. 
So what, what, I mean, since you are forced to give people advice within this, in the face of imperfect information, how do you, what, I mean, what do you advise your patients? Um, I try to focus on whatever diet could help them manage their weight, because clearly that's the most important thing. Um, I think that high protein could be really, really beneficial because it clearly lowers blood glucose, especially if you replace carbohydrate with protein, that seems to get great reductions in blood glucose. Mm -hmm. That is important because glucose itself is toxic to the beta cells. Now, so, I, sorry, go ahead. I mean, so, so that's kind of what I do. And I'm cautious about animal protein. So this is one thing I increasingly do with my practice. I try to give specific, more specific advice about yes, increase your protein, but try and get the majority of it from plants just because you're hedging your bets that way. That Well, that's what I was just going to say. I, I feel like there's almost a bit of a conflict there because um, you're saying, you know, replacing your carbs with protein. And meanwhile, most plant-based sources of protein come with carbs, like legumes, you know, and then and some people say, I have a friend of mine had gestational diabetes and she was said, I, I just realized I can't have beans. Beans are carbs. Um, and so I think that's actually one of the reasons people avoid plant-based proteins because they, they think it has to be zero carbs. And, you know, and that if they want pure protein, it's true. If you want protein purely, you basically have to go to animal products. I mean, soy is as much lower carb, but still. Um, yes, I make a distinction between um, primary proteins, I call them with my patients, and secondary proteins. So primary proteins would be, as you described, pretty much where 100% of it comes from protein. So the kind of thing, if you were having a chicken breast, you know, lean chicken breast, no skin, it's primarily protein. Now, increasingly, there are a bunch of good plant-based options. So you mentioned tofu, um, seitan, things like that. Um, but mycoprotein, so certainly in the UK, Every time I go into the supermarket, the options for plant-based high protein are changing. Many of them do actually have some carb, but it, it's nothing like, certainly nothing like rice or bread. So mm -hmm. you've certainly switched that ratio around. And then, like I said before, with the, the plate planning, what I would do is focus on getting secondary protein, ideally replacing some of the starch. So I might say have a quarter of your plate be primary protein and a quarter be secondary protein mm. and then make up the rest of the plate with healthy fats, non-starch veggies, and maybe some starch too. That's mm. how I kind of do it. Okay. That seems very doable. Do you get people asking you a lot? I also have a special interest in these um, plant-based meat alternatives. Is I, I did my PhD with the founder of Impossible Foods. So if you heard of the Impossible oh. Burger, yeah. So. Um, so I, I'm very interested in, and and I've um, a bit of an a bit of a I guess misinformation buster in that on that camp because I think there's a lot of those um, plant-based meat alternatives are get a bad rap because they're processed, right? And so then this gets into the um, whereas from my perspective, so like those products do have an issue with sodium and the saturated fat content can be an issue, but it's not the fact that they're generated in you know in a in a less natural way is not the inherent problem with them. I'm curious here if that comes up in your practice as people are shifting away yeah, from I animal mean, proteins. I mean, I would say this, I mean, in general, when I see patients increasingly in the UK, people are concerned about the environment. So people aren't mm. eating them because they think they're be better. They're eating yeah. them for the environmental reasons. Yeah. Um, I tend to agree with you that 
processed is an overwrought concept. We kind of need to understand what the processing is doing, mm-hmm. uh, how that's influencing the gut microbiome, how it's influencing rate of digestion, all yeah. of those things that might be important. And yeah. when I speak to people in the plant-based space, they're aware of that. They're aware that we want to investigate this. But almost undoubtedly, with many of those products, they are quite often replacing processed animal products. Yes. Yeah. So it's not that people are, are skipping on a, you know, a, a salmon fillet or a steak. They're, they're skipping on fish fingers or something similar. So it's it's not quite, I mean, you're, you're yeah. switching from plant or animal, animal process to plant-based process. So I think that the processing is overwrought. Um, and I think the things that is going to matter more is the fiber content of them and mm-hmm. the amino acids yes. with respect to type 2. Um, but you actually love a study. So I'm leading a study at the moment. I'm actually was doing the database today. We have looked at all of the plant-based products in supermarkets, takeaways, fast food delivery mm-hmm. in Canada, the US and the UK. So we have a database of 5,000 foods and we've been collecting the saturated fat, fat, mm-hmm. salt, uh, mm-hmm. sugar content because we want to look at this yeah um because kind of no good having these plant-based burgers with a whole bunch of coconut oil and the saturated fat content is higher and more atherogenic yeah. than right yeah i actually just did a little article on coconut coconut oil because i think it's um i i i rail a bit against this sort of natural is always better uh sort of notion yeah. and i think coconut oil is a great example of it's natural does that mean you should slather it all your food in coconut oil and add it to your smoothies and that's a good thing you know it's right. it's um it's so much there's so much more nuance than what if it comes from nature it's good for you if if it was made oh, yeah by a company it's bad for you um like don't so eat yeah nightshade. pardon me don't eat nightshade i mean there are yes oh exactly kill us with- exactly <laughs> exactly um so i guess uh, to wrap up this conversation i think a lot of you know, a lot of times the real struggle is putting it into practice, right? So how do you help people, you know, change their, change their diet and towards, you've described this plate concept, which I really like, but how do people take, how can people actually take action and take steps in that direction? I mean, so, so I'm actually a pragmatist here, uh, in the sense that, I mean, increasingly, I've been a clinical dietitian for 10 to 12 years. You do get some patients, if you tell them information they will go ahead and enact that information mm-hmm. the vast majority of people need ongoing support mm. um now i can't do that in my practice no yeah. dietitian can we can't, yeah. we can't individualize this as a society um mm. so i think apps are going to play a big role until mm. we can change our environment which, which yeah. everyone agrees we have to but apps can be really useful and i've been really impressed by results that for example verta are getting i don't think they specifically do type 2 prevention Mm. but they do type 2 remission i think they've they've included some pre-diabetes and it's not for everyone but you get that ongoing support uh in in a flexible way so i think technology is going to help us deliver a lot of these things and it can also deliver nudges to people Mm -hmm. um increasingly algorithms are going to be enable enable us to give people personalized advice based on their preferences which is is very useful Mm -hmm. i also think having for me having a metric to to track your progress is very useful so um certainly body weight is one but are there i mean are there other ways people can can be thinking about i've you know this feel good that i've reduced my risk and i know this because of this metric or number I love the idea of having other metrics and other feedback. Mm-hmm. And I think weight, 
good one. The problem is for lots of people, that goal is is some ways into the future. And whatever yeah. it is about human beings, we might be good at a short-term goal for this week, but mm-hmm. it's, it's more difficult to do something when we know we're not going to get the reward until, you know, two yeah. years. Um, so things like ketones, I mean, if people are following a ketogenic diet, mm-hmm. I think people do get this buzz from measuring their ketones, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, suppose you could just measure the behavior. Did I eat the way that I plan to eat? I mean, did I actually execute the behavior? But I don't know how you kind of simplify it to quantify that. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen, I mean, I, I haven't, I'm not completely okay with the behavioral research. Um, I mean, in general, like tracking, mm-hmm. whether it's tracking a diet, tracking weight, recording all this stuff is yeah. useful. You know, step, when people use the pedometer. But yeah. again, I, I think it's the kind of person who does that stuff that gets mm-hmm. motivation from it. Yeah. Um, but I think if we could have better biomarkers for things, I think this is going to help people stick to meal to meal recommendations mm-hmm. or goals. Mm-hmm. I suppose there probably are also just support resources and communities for people in similar boats. And I, th- I, I personally benefit a lot from having some telling someone my goal and, you know, they're trying to do the same thing and we share share our journey together. Yeah, I agree with you. And again, I think people really differ here, though. Um, yeah. I think there are gender differences, certainly, with what find motivation. Mm. You might remember, like, the pounds for Pally, and this was paying people to lose weight. Like, some people find that motivating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Intimidating. Yeah, you're right. So is there anything um, in the pre-diabetes research world, I guess, in terms of tools like we're talking about now, or in terms of, um, you know, scientific breakthroughs that are on the horizon that you're excited about? You know, it, it, like, actually, no. Um, <laughs> so I, I, put in, I put in some funding to try and do stuff, because this is the area I'm really passionate about. I did my pre, my PhD in pre-diabetes. And my problem is not that we, there haven't been great studies done. My problem is that they were testing one diet. The other thing that's very clear, no one's looking at beta cell function. Now, I I mentioned in the first uh, conversation that type 2 diabetes develops primarily because you get defective beta cell function and insulin resistance. Now, with weight loss and the general things that we do in diabetes prevention programs right now, you definitely get improvement in insulin sensitivity. Fantastic. But no one's ever shown that we improve beta cell function. Mm. Um, and, and that's the seminal defect. It's, the, it's mm-hmm. the seminal thing that goes wrong as you transition from pre-diabetes to type 2. So I am planning some work to look at that. But whether it gets funding or not, uh, who, who knows? But I think that's where we need to go in, in the pre-diabetes space. Well, thank you very much for this fascinating conversation. Um, Is there, if people want to learn more about you and, um, you know, your work, what's the best place to learn more? Um, So I'm very active on Twitter. So um, my um, name, if that's what you call it, is Dr. Under... (laughs) Oh, thank you. Um, I'm so old. (laughs) Dr. Underscore, underscore guest. So two underscores. That tends to be more sciencey. I interact with a lot of mm. other academics on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram with the same handle, and it's a lot more uh, patient friendly. So I give tips, yeah. um, talk about recent studies that have come out, and try to put things into lay terminology. Awesome! I'm gonna have to start following you. I think I already follow you on Twitter, which I do less of, and I do more of Instagram. But I'm kind of try- I'm getting. I find Twitter uh, really is a big black hole. I can get sucked in so easy. So I try not to go there too often, but I always learn a lot when I do. 
Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I've learned a lot from loads of other people on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you again for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Dr. Guess. You too.